A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And we'll start off with a couple of recent letters. Amazing, uh, large quantity of responses lately and some pretty good ones. Actually, in our um, recent episode on Ravrom Kalmanovich, we had the very special privilege of having a response from Ravrom Kalmanovich's daughter, um, a big Rebetzin in New York. And she listened to both episodes under Ravon Kalmanovich and was kind enough to give a very positive uh, response. I got an email from her uh, thanking for the um, stories and and uh, also attesting to their accuracy, which is also good to have every once in a while. And so um, that was that was um, a good you know uh, push in the right direction. Another great uh, letter I got just recently about the Mafia episode. We had about the Jewish Mafia. We had a couple recently. So I'll read this one because he actually brought up a very good, important topic also. Here it goes. Your recent episode on the Jewish Mafia was fun. If you're looking to go deeper, one area not many people know about is Jewish crime and gangsters outside of America. When I've taught classes on this topic at my shul, I've made the point that Jewish criminality was a function of economic restrictions that made it extremely challenging for Jews to both follow the law and make a living. As I told folks, contrary to popular myth, the biggest problem was not pogroms. A pogrom would, co- would come and then be over. These laws lasted for decades. That's the end of this part of the letter. Um, and and uh, I think it's a very important point. He's making really two points, which I just want to elaborate on for a second. Number one, about the story of Jewish, the Jewish underworld or mafia or mob or gangsters or gangs, not only in the United States and it was all over the world. There's a lot of lot of a lot of them actually in the immigrant communities in South America, but even more interestingly in the old world in the Jewish communities back home. Um, in Europe, in Poland, in Russia, and in other places that um, that the Jewish Jewish you know Jewish communities were in, and and uh, the the uh, the Jew the Warsaw, for instance, in the Warsaw Jewish underground, 
was pretty pretty sophisticated, pretty uh, well set up, and the um, it kept on going. There's a lot of accounts of it about what what type of rackets they were in charge of, and what type of underworld activities and criminal activities they were involved in, and it actually spilled over to the war. Avraham Gainkovich, probably mispronouncing his last name, was a famous, infamous, actually Jewish criminal who during the war became a Nazi collaborator. He ran a infamous group called the Dratzeners, because their offices were on uh, number 13 on Lechno Street, which was like the 13th, which was like, you know, Lechno Street was like the, was like the main thoroughfare in the Warsaw Jewish community neighborhood, which ended up being in the Warsaw Ghetto during the war. So it was on the main street, 13 Lechno Street, and they were called the Dratzeners, the 13. And uh, he he collaborated with the Gestapo. And as was the case in other Jewish cities, what ended up was that criminal elements within the Jewish population sometimes rose to power um, in, in exercising their criminal activities during the war. And sometimes even the Judenrat at later stages, such as in Minsk and other places, was staffed by the Nazis. By by the Nazis put Jewish criminals and underworld figures in charge, and sometimes they were collaborators. So it was in all types of activities, and it was a very very widespread. And that's also a fascinating story. That's one point he's bringing up in the letter. The second point that he is bringing up is the function of what forced people to go into crime, which was the economic restrictions. And he points out correctly that it was even worse very often than pogroms, because a pogrom was a one-time event, whereas economic restrictions, which caused emigration, which caused Jews to go into crime, which caused all kinds of other things, was the leading uh, cause for all these uh, terrible things. And therefore, the whole story of Jewish crime and the Jewish underworld is definitely a very interesting one. Just one last letter. Again, I'm just picking out another one. Um, someone wrote in just very recently, just listened, reading the letter, just listened to the podcast on FDR. I saw this Hapardes article from May 1945 talking about FDR's death and what, it lo- and what a loss it is for the Jews was interesting photo attached. And he attaches this article from Hapardes, which was a journal put out by the Agudas Harabonim in America, a very famous and prestigious journal, which was around for decades, and and uh, enormous resource for Jewish history, by the way, also. And in Hapardes, in May 1945, you have to see this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a couple of pages, and in Hebrew... But they're giving basically a hespid on FDR and what a loss it is for the Jewish people and what a sad day it is and and what a great leader he was and how good he was for the Jews, which is astounding because today, 70-something years later, in retrospect, all we could do is talk about how terrible FDR was because he didn't do uh, this and he didn't do that and he could have saved more and he could have done this and he was very cold and he was very indifferent. And there's a lot of nuance there as well, but the sum total of the picture is he doesn't come out looking that good. And here, in real time, there you have this amazingly eloquent, uh, like I said, almost like a hespit, a eulogy for, for FDR and what a loss it is for the Jewish people. So it's very interesting how people see things at the time. So that's 
Just a couple of letters. We'll move on to tonight's topic of Malava Malka episode. A little bit about the Sachachov Hasidic dynasty. One of the most incredible dynasties in the history of Hasidus. And we'll just touch on it a little bit. Um, and I'll start off with a story. Uh, my brother-in-law was once on a bus going from Yerushalayim to Bnei Brak. A famous bus line, the 402. For some, it's an infamous, infamous bus line because it's always so crowded and annoying. And he's taking the bus, and it happens to be that this bus was also very crowded and annoying. And when there was already no seats left, the bus stops at one of the last stops in Yerushalayim, about to get on the highway to Bnei Brak. And on to the bus walks, among other passengers, someone that my brother-in-law recognized, and he recognized him as... The Sachachava Rebbe, the current Sachachava Rebbe uh, from Bayit Vagan. Okay. He walks onto the bus, unaccompanied by anyone else, and seeing that there's no seats, he remains standing. Until a couple of minutes later, someone happens to recognize him and sees that it's the Sachachava Rebbe, and says, please, Rebbe, please take my seat and you sit down. And that's that's the story. That's the end of the story. And the reason it's so astounding is because most of us are pretty familiar with how Hasidic rabbis today drive around or are driven around. Um, you know, the more modest rabbis only have one car and only a very fancy car. Some of them have entire motorcades. Um, you know, and it's that's just the way we expect Rebbe's to drive around. So understandably, the Sachachava Rebbe, first of all, doesn't really have any Hasidim left today. You know, the Sachachava was completely decimated in the war. That's one explanation. But beyond that, it's also that the purity and the simplicity and the no shtick of Polish Hasidus in general, and specifically of Kotsk, where he is a direct descendant of the Kotsker, um, of what Sachachav is, it still remains somewhat till today that the Sachachava Rebbe can think of no, nothing that he's not, why should he be any different? He has to go to Bnei Brak. He gets on the 402 unaccompanied by anyone without any family members or gabbais or anyone accompanying him. He gets on the bus. There's no seat. So he continues standing and there's no two ways about it because there's no shtick. There's no, there's no playing around. And that really is a great introduction to cuts because, because, uh, excuse me, to Sachachav. Sachachav its roots are in Kutsk. The father of the Sachachava, the first Sachachava Rebbe, was Davni Nazar, Avram Barnstein. So his father was already a chassid of the Kutsker, and the Avni Nazar marries the Kutsker's daughter. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, look, he married the Kutsker's daughter. First of all, when the, when the Kutsker died, Avni Nazar was 20 years old. So how much could he have known his father-in-law? How long was he married for? Second of all, the Kutsker was in isolation in his last 20 years. How much could he have really known his father-in-law? So to answer the first question is that Avni Nezer got married when he was 13 years old, a little different than today. And uh, you know, today they are encouraging people to marry younger to solve the Shidduch crisis so they could point to the Avni Nezer as a good source for that and maybe start encouraging people to get married at 13. I don't know. But that's, that's what he did. So he was actually together with his father-in-law. He lived in his house for the last seven years of the Kutzker's life, which is a significant amount of time. And secondly, the Kutzker's isolation did not apply to the Avnei Nezer. The, the uh, Kutzker loved his son-in-law, and he saw him every day. He was in and out, and 
The Avni Nezer testifies himself. He writes, I went lifnai vilifnim. I was invited into the inner chambers of my father in law, the Kutzker, and he taught me everything. In fact, in typical Kutzk fashion, the, again, you have to understand what this means for a big Chazidish Rabbi to say this. He said that he wasn't sure if he should do the Shidduch right away because he was scared that if he marries his daughter off to the Avne Nezer, so now the Avne Nezer is A, he's married, and B, he's married into a Rebisha family, he's married to the daughter of a Rebbe. So he was scared that the Avne Nezer might start learning Chasidus. And he said, what a pity, what a waste. He has such a brilliant mind, and he's such an Eloi, he's such a genius, and he's such a Masmid. He could be such a big Paisik and Talmud Chacham in London, and I'm afraid he might start learning Hasidus, and I'm concerned that that might happen. But he overcame his concern, and uh, they made the Shidduch anyway. So the Avnei Nezer goes ahead and marries into uh, the Kutsk. The Kutsker dies, and the Avnei Nezer, being a young man, he follows his, his, the Kutsker's successor, which is essentially the Chidushi Harim of Ger, the first Ger Rebbe, and some people are upset at him because his older brother-in-law, his half-brother-in-law, Reb David of Kutsk, Reb David Morgenstern, the Kutsk's son, also became a Rebbe, and Avinezer chose not to follow him. He chose to follow Chidush Arim, and when the Chidush Arim dies, he chooses to follow his successor, which is Reb Chanech of Alexander, the Alter Rebbe of Alexander, which is not related to the Alexander Hasidic dynasty, which is a different dynasty. He just happened to live in Alexander. And then when he dies four years later in 1870, when the Sfas becomes the Rebbe in Ger, so that's when the Sachachav also becomes the Rebbe. Now, and it doesn't become Sachachav then, because he's a Rebbe first in Partshev, and then Nashalk, and a couple other towns in between, where he didn't have it easy. And um, he was a Rav. He was a rabbi of a town. Um, he was, that's important to understand. He was a Rav. He was a Paisik. He was a local communal leader. Even when he became Rebbe, he refused to take money from his Hasidim. No pidyonis, no money from his Hasidim. He makes a salary as a rabbi of a town, and that's his policy, and he insisted on that. And in 1870, he takes on the additional role as a, as a Rebbe. It was the last role he took. But it was not the only role that he took. He had already taken on a third role earlier, um, and that was one of the most unique uh, things in the annals of Hasidus. He wore three crowns. He was the Rav of the town, he was later on the Rebbe, and he also was a Rosh Yeshiva. He opened the Yeshiva, which you did have that in Hungarian Hasidus more often. There are several examples of it. The most famous of being was the Satmarov later on. But in Poland, in Ukraine, it never existed, and Poland didn't really exist. In for the Rebbe to be a Rosh Hashiva also, famously in the generation before the war, the Piyatetzner Rebbe was like that, but he was the exception that proves the rule. In Sachachov, that became one of the hallmarks of Sachachov, that the Rebbe was a Rosh Hashiva. He gave Shiurim, and he was a Rosh Hashiva. He had Talmidim, the Avnenezer's Talmidim, some of them were famous. The Chalkasyayev, who was a famous uh, Rav in Poland before the war, was a Talmud of his, and... Um, the Kajlikovarov, who was later the Rashiva in Chachmei Lublin, was a Sachachavar Chassid and a student of the Avnei Nezer. And interestingly enough, one of the, one of the more unique students of the Avnei Nezer for a very short time was Reblazer Yudel Finkel, the altar of Slobotka's son, who later was the Rashiva of the Mir. 
He learned by everyone. He was in Tells, he was by Reb Chaim Brisker, he was here, he was there. He was in many, many places. He learned in quite a few different yeshivas, and he's one of the only Litfisha boys to have gone all the way to Poland, all the way to Sachachev, to learn and study by the Avne Nezer, the great, I mean, it's a very short time, didn't work out well, the Polish Sachachev style, which was kind of also elitist, and it was very penetrating. He kind of, the, the Avne Nezer kind of applied Kotsk to learning Gemara, which was an interesting combination. You know, the pers- uh, relentless pursuit of truth, of pure truth, and uh, I'm not going to get into that whole details now, but interesting side note that Reblazi Yudel ended up by the, um, by the Avni Nezer for a short time. Now, um, he was also, I mean, he was unmatched in this combination as being a great Talmud Chacham, a great Rav, a great Paisik, and a great Rashiva. And also a rabbi at the same time, for quite a few Hasidim. He had a, you know, a large Hasidus. And, um, he was a sharp-minded individual, like the legacy of Kutsky. He had quite a few chumras in halacha. He was very anti-machine matzah. He was one of the early ones who spoke about, uh, by, uh, by a bris, about, against doing mitzitza with a, with a, uh, kli, with, with, by not you doing directly a mitzitza bepeh. He was against reading secular newspapers, and he was also anti-Zionist, though he, um, he like, also became a legacy of Kutsk. Like his descendants, he was very supportive of settling the land, of building, of buying land in Israel, but he was against the secular Zionism expression of that. In his later years, he, in 1905, when the Svasemis died, and the Imrayemis, or Ram Mordechai Alter, became the Ger Rebbe, so he was young, and he took over this huge Hasidus. And here the elder Polish Rebbe at the time was the Avnei Nezer, still the son-in-law of the Kutzker was around. And the Avnei Nezer, let it be known that he gave his approval of the Emrayemes, of the Ger Rebbe. And this kind of put the Emrayemes on the map. He was very, you know, he was very proud and privileged to get that approval of the Avnei Nezer, and because of that, uh, uh, he was able to take off as the great leader that he later became, uh, in part because the Avnei Nezer gave him his support. When Avnei Nezer himself dies in 1910, um, his son, his only son, he had a daughter also, but his only son, um, the Shemi Shmuel, Reb Shmuel Barnstein of Sachachev, he becomes the next Sachachev Rebbe, and he becomes the Rosh Hashiva. He, he had been a rabbi also of a couple of different towns, and now he takes on the triple crown uh, of the rabbi, Rosh Hashiva, Rebbe. And um, he has Yeshiva and Zagers. And later on, uh, a few years after he became Rebbe, World War I breaks out, and the town of Sachachev and the Jewish community there was completely destroyed during World War I. The Sachachev Rebbe did not return to Sachachev after World War I. The Hasidus was first in Zagers, and then later in Lodz. And... Um, and that's where he had his yeshiva as well. So the, and the Shemi Shmuel is actually even more sharp than the, um, than the, uh, than his father, than Avnei Nezer. I think actually what I said before might be incorrect about the Chalkasayev and the Kajla cover. Having studied under the Avnei Nezer, I want to correct that. I think they actually studied under his son, Reb Shmuel, the Shemi Shmuel, the second Rebbe of Sachachev in his yeshiva. In any event, so the um, the he actually visited 
um, Eretz Yisrael in his father's lifetime, and he tried buying land, and the Turkish government gave him problems. You know, so they wanted to. He was really pro settling the land, pro moving to Israel, not exactly in the nationalist, secular Zionist ideal, but definitely in 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 the scheme of things, um, um, and especially in comparative comparative to others, Sachachev. All the rabbis throughout the dynasty were very much uh, promoting that, and it came through in his kids. Unlike his father, who only had two kids, a son and a daughter, the Shem Yishmuel had 21, believe it or not, from two different wives. His first wife died young, and then he goes on and had a bunch more kids. 21 kids now, a family that size, you're going to have a big diversity. So he had a couple of kids who left, you know, religious, traditional Jewish life altogether, one of them became a Yiddish writer, a famous Yiddish playwright who uh, even was mocking of his Hasidic background. He became a bit anti-religious and a very interesting character. He had a daughter also, who the Shemishmuel had a daughter also who, who left uh, traditional Jewish life and became secular and joined the leftist Marxist uh, political uh, uh, um, party, Paul Zion. And then he had a bunch more kids who became Zionists, which, according to some, might be called leaving a traditional Jewish life. Also, according to others, it might just be seen as taking another direction. And some of them came to, uh, you know, they're talking about ones who stayed from, you know, and uh, religious. And he, he um, a bunch of them moved to Israel. So those ones survived, one of whom was the father uh uh, one of the one of whom later becomes the Sachachav Rebbe when everyone else in Europe was killed out. Um, he was he was a Zionist. He sent his son, who became the next next Sachachav Rebbe, to Rav Moshe Tzvi Neriyaz Yeshiva in Kfar Haro'eh, who's and that that Rebbe who died young in a car crash is the father was the father of today's current Rebbe, who was orphaned at the age of eight and was later crowned as. As uh, the new Sachachav Rebbe by Rabbi Shumaisha Aronson, who was a fascinating figure, who I'll get to in a second, who was the senior Chassid, surviving Chassid of Sachachav in the in the nineteen seventies and eighties. In any event, so the Shemi Shmuel, like I said, had a very diverse group amongst his kids. In fact, his youngest daughter—I think it's his youngest daughter—one of his younger daughters was the was married to a fellow named Rappaport. And they're the parents of a well-known uh, rabbi and and the grandson of Ramesha Feinstein, Reb Shabtai Rappaport, who is very involved, who was very involved in putting out Ramesha's writings, and is a very prominent Talmud Chacham and writer and researcher, and till today, so he's a grandson of the Shem Yishmuel, the Sachachav Rebbe. Uh, what, so the so the Sachachav of Shem Yishmuel dies in 1926, and his Oldest son, Reb David of Sachachev, uh, becomes the rabbi. He's an interesting figure. He's a great leader. He's, um, you know, he's involved in the Agudas Rabbanim of Poland. He's involved in the Agudas Yisrael. He was on the Mayetzis Gedele, a terror of Agudas Yisrael. He participated in all the Knesias in Agudas Yisrael. He also, at this point, lives in Lodz, which is a major Jewish city, and a lot going on. He starts not just one yeshiva, but a a a whole yeshiva system, an amazing Sachachav yeshiva system called Base of Raham, which had several branches. A couple of them had a couple, had a few hundred students each. The main branch had 300 students. Talking about a huge 
world of of and is all about is not about sachet shav chasidus. This is about just being a you know top notch yeshiva. And he actually gave shiurim there, and it was called Beis Avram, named after his grandfather, who he had studied under Avnei Nezer, Avram of Sachachav. He was close with him, very close with him. In fact, if I go back again one generation, his father, the Shemi Shmuel, was three and a half years old when his grandfather, the Kutzker himself, died. And the Shemi Shmuel claimed to remember his grandfather, the Kutzker. So when he was three and a half, so I guess that's also talented to remember someone when you're that young, and he was, said how it influenced him that he knew his grandfather. So we move back to the next generation, Rab David of Sachatshav, the third Sachatshav Rebbe. He was close with his grandfather, the Avnei Nezer, and he named the yeshiva after him. Now, um, so he, uh, you know, during the war, the beginning of the war, the Nazis come in to lodge the captured him, he was tortured, and he runs to Warsaw. He's in the Warsaw Ghetto, where he uh, joins um, the, there was a Gerach named, a wealthy Gerach named Avram Hendel, who managed what was called the Schultz Shop in the Warsaw Ghetto. It's a German firm that took over a group, a whole section of factories, and Avram Hendel was the manager hired by the Nazis to run it, and he used that as an opportunity to save rabbis and rebbes and important people in the Warsaw Ghetto. And at one point, there was several hundred, a couple of hundred rabbonim, rabbis, working because of this Avram Handel in the Schultz shop. And if a person had a job, the assumption was that that would save him from death. Unfortunately, it didn't work, and we don't know pretty much of a single rabbi who was uh, saved ultimately because of it, but definitely did stave off the death sentence. You're talking about the Alexander Rebbe, the Sachachav Rebbe, the Piazetzna Rebbe, and the Menachem Zemba, and, and the, and the, Ramesh B'tzal Alter, and just endless, the amount of rabbis and uh, Rabbanim and Rebbes who were tried to be saved by this Avram Handel in the Schultz shops of the Sachachav Rebbe, Rebbe David, was one of those who was working there. Interestingly enough, in March 1942, his close chassid, Rabbi Shu Moshe Aronson, who was a fascinating individual who perhaps one day we can devote an entire podcast to him, an amazing person um, during the war years and in the post-war, a fascinating individual. There's many, much written about him, much that he wrote himself. So he's a chassid of the Sachachavar, and he is at this point not in Warsaw, but he finds out about the first deportations of the Final Solution. So I guess, you know, again, it's coming up to Purim, so it's very apropos what the message was. He sends a letter to the Warsaw Ghetto that, he, that gets smuggled in, and he writes it in code so that it's not obvious in case the censors get it, in case the Nazis find it, in case they trace it back to him. He writes, to, addresses it to his Rebbe, the Sachachava Rebbe. He writes, Aunt Esther from 4 Megillah Street, Apartment 7 is coming for a visit. And the Chesachachav Rebbe understood immediately what the code was. Aunt Esther is Megillus Esther, you know, Megillus Street. And four, apartment seven, means Perik Dalid, Pasik Zion. And if you take a look, the Pasik is, Kinim Karnu Aniva Ami Lahashmid Laharaygu Laabed. The nation has been sold, we're going to be completely wiped out. This is March 1942, the beginning of the final solution. And the Sachachav Rebbe is actually one of the first people in the Warsaw Ghetto because of this warning 
to raise the alarm about the final solution. He reports it to others, he speaks to others, and he tries to get people to be aware. It's an amazing uh, thing. And he writes back, actually, he codes him back to Rabbi Shumash Aronson a letter. He writes to him, Sing Grandpa's composition, uh, the 23rd poem, the fourth part. And he understood also immediately what the hint was. It was Tehillim, his grandfather, David HaMelech, is considered the grandfather, I guess, in this context. And Tehillim is 23, is, is, uh, and the, the fourth part is Gam Ki Eilech B'Gates Almaves, so it's very powerful how they're writing these hints to each other as the final solution is going on. Incredibly enough, the Sachat Rebbe survives the great deportation to Treblinka that took place in the Warsaw Ghetto. He's in hiding in December 1942 when he dies. Uh, probably uh, what the weakness and the travails that he had experienced in the ghetto contributed to that but he did die somewhat of a natural death, and amazingly enough, he has a public levi, this is in the after the Great Deportation for the Warsaw Ghetto. The ghetto is decimated at this point, and everyone's living in fear, and all half in hiding. And here, they made a levaya, a funeral for the Sochet Rebbe, and they bury him in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. As far as we know, it's one of the last, or perhaps even the last, known burial in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, during the war. Again, after the war, they used it again, but during the war, and it was so done in haste that they did not even mark his grave. Eyewitness testimony saying that he's buried near the Chemdas Shloima, the great first chief rabbi of Warsaw. He's buried near there, and whenever I bring the groups to Warsaw, and we go to the Chemdas Shloima, Shloima Zalman Lifshitz, we go to his grave, I speak about the fact that somewhere near here, the Sachat Shavarab is buried, but we don't know where his grave is. And when we go to Sachatshav, I bring the groups to Sachatshav, which is in between Warsaw and Lodz, there's actually a plaque outside his father and grandfather's kever in memory of him, because we don't know exactly where his grave is in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. So that's a little bit about Sachatshav. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and tours and trips to places of Jewish history. You could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.